0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome back in the Doctor's Lounge. I'm your host, Dr. Hal Schurz. We come to you each week, myself and my co-host, Dr. Scott Barber. And we bring you the information that you need so that you can advocate for your health care and the care of your family. We we talk about the uh, issues that doctors talk about in doctors' lounges all across the country. Nobody's going to doctors' lounges anymore, of course, course because of COVID. But nonetheless, this is what we talk about on our blogs and in in chat rooms and on the social media platforms. And we try to uh, bring you up to date, up to speed on all the information that you need so that you can be an informed consumer of healthcare. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation supports this show and does a tremendous amount of work so that we can support... The doctor-patient relationship and fight for healthcare freedom for Americans all over the country. Go to our website triple the number four PC Foundation org. That's D four PC Foundation org, and contribute five dollars today. Just give ten dollars, but anything that you give is going to come back to help you. And in this show, we're gonna. Uh, Explore why your dollars that you uh, give to this tax um, exempt organization that you can deduct this from your taxes, how this is going to benefit you. Because we, are, we have doctors who are fighting for you, the patients, every single day. And my guest today is a dear, dear friend of mine, colleague, somebody I've worked with for over a decade in fighting the battles in uh, Washington and elsewhere for health care, uh, who is now the president, has been the president of the Docs for Patient Care Foundation. And that's uh, Dr. Lee Gross. Lee, welcome back into the doctor's lounge. Lee, you there? He's not there, David. Oh no! What is going on? I don't
0: know. Uh, he was here. He's still on the line.
1: Well, late, late. Not there. Oh no! We got a technical glitch. Lee? Lee, hello. He's not there. What do we do? Adler. <laughs> Well, Lee is talking to us today um, about uh, we have to get him back because he has a limited amount of time, so I don't know how we can do this. Um, But, Lee, if you can hear me, if you hear my voice, call back, please. Try it again. Lee, you there? He's calling back. Lee. He's calling back in. Yeah, I don't know what. uh, Let me transfer you back in again. Okay, something happened. A little technical difficulty, Lee. You there. Can you hear me now, Hal? Yes. Did you hear me throughout that intro?
0: I heard everything you said, and I said all sorts of nice things about you.
1: <laughs> well, um, unfortunately, uh, uh, unfortunately, I and missed in conclusion, it. conclusion. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man! All right, let's plow let's through. Well, Lee, thanks, thanks for for taking some time. We've changed the format a little bit, and we're going to be able to go straight through for thirty minutes. And I know oh, you've man. got you've got uh, a busy practice. And uh, Lee Gross is the not only the president of the Docs for Patient Care Foundation, but he is the founder of Epiphany Health, which is one of the early direct primary care practices in the country. And he has led the charge in fighting against all the forces that are against direct primary care um, and uh, trying to make it accessible to everybody because it's really, truly uh, the, the the best way to give health care and it is uh, hopefully going to be the cornerstone of how people get their care in the future. So, Lee, just briefly, um, tell everybody who is not familiar with this podcast and the work of docs for patient care briefly in, in a couple sentences what direct primary care is.
0: Direct primary care is, a, is an insurance free third party free uh, free market healthcare care solution that provides affordable access directly between a patient and a primary care physician. So it's a direct contract between a doctor and a patient usually for a fixed flat low monthly fee for un, uh, essentially unlimited services, unlimited technology visits, unlimited in-person visits, and usually anything that's sent in the office is included in the membership fee. So for us, that fee is as low as $65 a month for adults uh, and as low as $10 a month for children, and after that, there's no charge for anything in the office.
1: So, Lee, you um, uh, accidentally found your way into this, which now has become one of the fastest... I like to tell people that aside from... Hospitals buying up physician practices. This is the fastest growing healthcare delivery model in the country.
0: Yeah, so it took Starbucks about seventeen years to get to seventeen stores, and we've gone uh, from you know just a, a handful of practices to well over fifteen hundred practices in about ten years.
1: And people uh, and people are who who um, are skeptical about direct primary care. Change their mind very quickly, and um, and that's because they they get better care, don't they?
0: They get better care. It, it eliminates obstacles. It, it eliminates uh, a lot of the fee for service stuff that happens in primary care. Um, I'm not necessarily opposed to fee-for-service, but there are certainly some things that can be done more effectively by eliminating any financial barriers. Uh, So, you know, one of the things we talked about off the air is that, you know, in the midst of this pandemic, we were just able to flip a switch and convert our entire practice to an online practice. And we were able to convert in-office visits to in-parking lot visits. We didn't have to care about what the insurance company said, and, and we didn't have to wait for Medicare rules that allowed us to change our billing practices. We just did what was best for patient care gave us great access to rural health care uh, and so it really does improve the efficiency uh, and, and quality of, of the interaction between doctor and the patient. Uh, happier patient, happier doctor uh, it makes for a great combination.
1: And here's here's the softball one of the softballs okay because I'm going be I'm going be the ignorant person who knows nothing about this. Oh you're, this is this is concierge care, isn't it? this is concierge health care.
0: Yeah, so so it certainly had its foundation in in the concierge movement. But the concierge is almost almost has this sort of elitist appeal to it, which really uh, I think the, the direct primary care has sort of been dubbed the, the uh, concierge care for the for the little guy or the blue collar concierge. It's a much lower price point. An analogy I like to use is that when airbags first came to the market, they were only on high end automobiles, but now airbags are standard on every single vehicle in the country. I think that's going to be the same for direct primary care, where I think that's going to be uh, the model for health care delivery really throughout the entire nation.
1: Okay. So, you know, you um, uh, have have championed direct primary care for a decade, and it's one of the one of the pillars of the Docs for Patient Care Foundation, um, our annu- the annual meeting that Docs for Patient Care runs under your tutelage and all the work that has gone into helping to grow direct primary care, um, what, is, what is the, um, the, the biggest obst- obstacle um, as far as, as uh, you see it right now?
0: From a policy perspective, there are two major obstacles that, that we've had to deal with. The first one is if a doctor charges a flat monthly fee for for their services, isn't that doctor a risk-bearing entity, and shouldn't they be regulated as an insurance company? Uh, and the second issue is, uh, is a membership fee a qualifying medical expense to use for pre-tax purposes for tax-deferred accounts, like health savings accounts, health reimbursement arrangements, flexible spending accounts, uh, writing it off the taxes. So it was a membership, a health care expense. Those two issues are sort of tackled in two different ways. One of them is at the state level, and the other one is at the federal level. And that's really the, the, the policy work that we have been doing uh, for almost a decade now at this point. Uh, so the one at the state issue, you know, we have worked uh, to help get legislation passed. It's now passed in 28 states that basically say, Uh, that direct primary care is not a health plan Uh, and direct primary care doctors are exempt from regulation in states that have passed these laws uh, from being regulated as insurance companies as insurance plans and if you sell memberships you don't have to be registered and licensed as an insurance agent. That's common sense to you and me but it's not common sense to those that that manage and regulate insurance. The federal issue has been a lot more complex Um, and this uh, again goes back at least to, to 2010 passage of the Affordable Care Act. There was language in the Affordable Care Act that allowed direct primary care to be included or to meet minimum essential coverage provisions if it was wrapped around with a a, a coordinated health care plan. And then going back into 2014 with uh, the IRS Commissioner John Koskinen, uh, he had written a letter, an opinion letter, that said that in his opinion direct primary care was a health plan um, and a health plan uh, disqualifies Uh, the usage of health savings accounts. Uh, That's just a a very very uh, uh, particular intricacy with health savings accounts is when you have a health savings account, it has to be paired with a qualified high-deductible health plan, and you can only have one health plan with a health savings account. You can't have two. So if you call the direct primary care, if you interpret it as that being a health plan, that technically would be a second health plan, and therefore disqualifying you not from using your HSA dollars, but from contributing to your HSA. And so that's one of the challenges we've been trying to fix now for for many many years.
1: So how many trips would you estimate you have made to Washington D.C. to try to fight this battle?
0: I would probably estimate it at at least 20.
1: And that's that's really taking time out from your very busy practice, and I want everybody to understand that this is the kind of work that doctor patient care is doing and it it's it 's truly a labor of love it 's not self serving although it does benefit direct primary care doctors, but more importantly, it benefits the patients you know and so I think that um, that uh, people need to uh, uh, investigate this if they do not understand what direct primary care is. I think more and more people do, and uh, and so I think that this. I agree with you. This is going to be the cornerstone of of the future. So, so you've been fighting this battle, and uh, with with uh, you know your your lieutenants at your side or your co generals, and um, and finally. Um, We have a a friendly administration that is willing to listen. So tell everybody what recently has happened.
0: Yeah. So as you remember, Hal, you and I were both uh, there on the state floor of the White House when President Trump signed his executive order in June of last year uh, instructing the Treasury Department to interpret direct primary care to be a qualified medical expense under Section 213D of the Internal Revenue Code. Uh, and so he instructed the, them to, uh, within within uh, 180 days of the signing of that order, June 24th, uh, that the Treasury should put forth a rule uh, as allowed under existing law to change its interpretation or to specify its interpretation that direct primary care is, in fact, a qualified health expense. So. If you if you do the math, uh, 180 days after June would have put that square in the middle of an impeachment trial. Uh, <laughs> and so 180 days came and 180 days went. No rule. Uh, and and uh, you know, really not much has happened. And then the impeachment wrapped up. And as you know, right on the tails of impeachment came a COVID pandemic. Uh, and so the White House obviously uh, had very, very uh, uh large fish to fry, and changing the tax code to, to affect uh, 1,500 physicians across the country really was not their, their highest priority, uh, and so it sort of fell to the wayside. Uh, but thankfully, with lots and lots of work by lots of great people and, and our relationship that we have with the White House, our relationship that we have with Health and Human Services, our relationship with Treasury, and, and our partners that we've worked with for, for, for a decade, across the nation have sort of leaned on them all, uh, and thankfully, even during an election when you really can't really get any big policy wins, it's almost unheard of, we were able to get the Treasury to finally release this, this rule, which came out about six days ago, and in this rule, it clarifies that direct primary care is, in fact, a eligible 213D qualified medical expense. But so,
1: there were some glitches there too, right? There's, it's there not were definitely smooth some glitches. So yep. what I
0: would say is, you know, this is we advanced the football ninety-nine yards, and then we got a holding penalty <laughs> at the one-yard line.
1: Oh, sure, uh, and that's that's typical of Ohio State football.
0: <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Thanks for mentioning that. Uh, and and we hope to be watching that football again in the
1: fall. I hope so too. So yeah. what 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 was the holding penalty?
0: So so the, the the glitch was again that in this definition of what is a health plan, and you know we we sat down for a long time in the in the Treasury Building right next to the White House in Washington D.C. three physicians and twelve Internal Revenue Service lawyers.
1: Oh, that's that's uh, that's, a, that's a bad combination. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's a bad combination. They needed more lawyers. It was it wasn't a fair fight. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and we proceeded to, to to field a barrage of questions from from attorneys that were in person. Uh, the uh, the assistant secretary of tax policy for the Treasury was there. That's the person that's responsible for determining how tax policy is interpreted in the country. Uh, and it was you know it was a divided room, uh, but they really truly believe that direct primary care is a health plan, and they don't care that we're not an insurance plan. They made it very clear that you don't need to be an insurance product. To be a health plan, um, and we made all sorts of, of arguments uh, w- with them, explaining it. And we we hired legal counsel uh, the former gener- uh, uh, the uh, former attorney for Health and Human Services uh, is, was our attorney that we hired for for this. Uh, and we we filed a ten page legal document with them, explaining you know the position of of, of why they should rule in our favor, uh, but. While they have declared us a 213D qualified medical expense, they also just, they wouldn't go so far as to say that we're not a health plan. Um, and in fact, they even put some language in the, the proposed rule that's, that says that if an employer pays it, it is a group health plan. Um, which, frankly, is, was very, just, as, as appreciative as we are of the efforts for the White House and the Treasury to go to all this this to, to help us, um, that was a, a fairly painful Statement to
1: read when we saw that in there. You, you know, Lee, you you had written about this um, and gave some great examples when in your article um, that you wrote uh, in F- on Florida Family Physician, which really kind of jumped out at me, <clears throat> where you had talked about um, the the uh, the the student who has to pay fees for the um, for their for their medical care at school that's not a qualified health plan but it's a fixed fee and you gave some other examples in that article including Costco membership and being able to get eye care and uh, and that's still being eligible for HSA so I'm sure that you brought those examples to light in in uh, your discussions with them correct
0: we absolutely brought those in so again just to kind of clarify your I think the one that stands out the most is is the student, you know, the college student. Every college in campus across the country charges a separate student health fee, a fixed fee that's based upon on how many credit hours they're taking, and that's in addition to their tuition, and if they pay that fixed fee, it gives them unfettered access to the student health center, and there's no charge for services if they don't have insurance to access that. That is effectively is a fixed fee relationship for unlimited care, just like direct primary care, yet if they were to enforce that they would have to disqualify the HSA contributions of every family in the country that has a student in college they have never attempted to do that uh, they will never attempt to do that uh, you know the other example is is every member of Congress pays a flat fee to access the the office of the attending physician which is a physician's office in the Capitol. Uh that struck primary care that that office has been open for a hundred years <laughs> uh, <laughs> And so, you know, I think, and the point that I tried to make to them is that if they go and try to enforce DPC being a health plan, they will have painted themselves into a corner that they're, quite frankly, not going to be able to, to defend uh, because their their enforcement is inconsistent with their with their history.
1: So, Lee, this uh, and, is these are know, the these deputy
0: are... secretary made it very clear that they're dealing with tax policy that was written in the 1940s, and they're having to interpret 1940s tax policy to. And how to apply that into healthcare delivery in 2020.
1: So, is there a legal challenge based on the examples that you gave, Lee? I think that there there seems to be um, an opportunity. To, you know, and I know this is expensive, but you know, we work with a lot of pro bono. Um, legal groups that would um, very possibly love to take this on and uh, as a legal challenge is is, is it, it's not a law but it's a ruling is that is it possible to to show the inconsistencies and, and get them to to rule in favor of saying that DPC is not a qualified medical plan
0: I think if this were to go to court, um, I think this would be a, a very winnable argument, very winnable fight for us. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the facts are definitely on our side on this one. The problem is that the IRS has never, in any way, shape, or form, attempted to enforce this. Yes. they have never gone after somebody for using health savings accounts for to pay for direct primary care.
1: But it's an impediment. Uh, so, it's technically so, an...
0: nobody has standing to file a lawsuit. Yeah, uh, but once they, the very first time they do. You know that's a case that will will absolutely be taken up and fought.
1: Okay, so so congratulations on on moving the ball ninety nine yards.
0: So let me tell you what the rule does do because you know we talked about what the rule didn't do, but what the rule does do is it allows you to use health reimbursement arrangements to pay for direct primary care, so your employer can give you dollars to to pay for your your membership. Uh, It allows flexible spending accounts so that you can set pre tax dollars aside to pay for your direct primary care membership. It allows Medicare savings accounts to be used with direct primary care, uh, so you can bundle those with Medicare Advantage plans uh, and use those funds that are in the accounts. Uh, It allows you to deduct the direct primary care membership from your taxes if your medical expenses exceed a certain percentage of your income. Uh, And in certain situations, I mean, you can definitely use your health savings account. If you've saved money in your HSA all your life, uh, and you now are on Medicare, and you're not contributing to that HSA anymore. You can use you can still use your HSA dollars to pay for the direct primary care memberships. You just can't contribute to that HSA anymore. Yeah. So it, again, it opens up mountains of of opportunities for for direct, direct primary care practices. So when does this uh, go
1: into effect, Lee?
0: So we are six days into a sixty day open rule uh, comment period.
1: Okay. Which
0: means that if you don't like what's in that rule, if you don't like that they have called us a health plan, now is your opportunity to let them be heard, have your we, voice be heard. How, how
1: do we get we people? How do we get people to do that? Because I don't want to. Yeah, so leak. if you go to
0: the FederalRegister.gov,
1: federal and you register,
0: do a search for direct primary care, it'll bring up the proposed rule from the Internal Revenue Service, and you can just click Add Comment and put your comments in, saying, so, you know thank you we we really really like this rule we appreciate the work but here's where we think you got it wrong okay um, and so specifically so, comment on the health plan issue
1: so for those of us as as uh, you you it likes to say who are Pittsburgh Steeler fans say this again so that everybody who's listening can this is their this is their homework they need to go online they go to need to go to federalregister.gov gov, .gov. And when they go on there, what are they going to see? What are they going to look for?
0: Yeah, so there's going to be a, a search box up on the top of that. You're going to click on that search box, and you're going to type the words direct primary care, and it will bring up all of the federal rules that affect direct primary care. And the latest one will be this proposed rule uh, by the Internal Revenue Service. And if you click on that rule, it, you can read the rule if you want. It's uh, it's it's long. Okay. <laughs> um, but then it also gives you an opportunity to click and add a comment. So that is an official comment that is added to the to Federal Register. That is an official open source document. Um, but we want as many people to comment yeah. uh, favorably on the rule as possible uh, because what happens is this rule, so the, these comments will all be reviewed by the Internal Revenue Service, and they will take those into consideration and perhaps even change or fix the rule because right now it's just a proposed rule. It typically takes them about three to four months to review all the comments, to make the changes in the rule, and then the rule becomes finalized. They will publish a final rule, and that will probably come, uh, based upon the current timing, sometime around December.
1: Okay. So the homework for all the listeners is to do this, what what Dr. Gross just um, asked people to do, put a comment in, which is two parts. To thank them for recognizing that DPC is... Is a um, is a uh, well? How how do we a medical expense? A a medical expense, but um, but uh, comment that you want them not to recognize it as a qualified health plan because it it puts handcuffs on direct primary care practices and is an impediment for people to be able to enter that market and continue to make contributions to their HSAs. Is that correct?
0: Correct, and specifically, if you it, it, specifically in the comments, if you could address, you know, that direct primary care practices are not risk bearing. Not uh,
1: risk bearing. You know, I think that
0: was sort of one of the one of the big hangups is that the direct primary care practices bear bore risk. You know, we we've been bearing risk for as HMO capitated contracts for decades. Um, we've never been deemed a health plan. We bear risk every single day. Um, But the direct primary care relationships do not have any increased risk over any other practice in the country. In fact, what we've learned in this pandemic is we actually have less risk (laughs) than most practices because where most practices uh, in the last uh, 90 to 120 days have been decimated by this pandemic, uh, the direct primary care practices are thriving.
1: So what, what tell, tell us, you know, I know that you're going to have to go in about four minutes and go and see patients, but tell us about your experience during the pandemic. And uh, you said offline that you have a little bit of survivor's guilt. You said that tongue-in-cheek because you're actually um, able to, um, you're thriving because you're able to offer something that, that uh, others can't.
0: Yeah, so, so on where most practices now are, are laying off employees because, you know, who knew we'd have a healthcare pandemic that basically puts all the healthcare workers out of business, but that's exactly what we've managed to do. Uh, but, you know, a lot of these practices, you know, the patients were afraid to come to the office, elective procedures were canceled, uh, they had to follow insurance company rules in terms of technology visits, televisits, and it took... Medicare every bit of a month to change their rules to allow people to do technology visits because, you know, prior to that, they make you might get paid $5 to do an office visit over the telephone. Right. Uh, and you can't survive on a $5 office visit. Right. Uh, and so what we did is on the very first day, we flipped a switch and we converted all of our visits to technology visits. We mm-hmm. did video visits. We did Skype visits. We did Facebook visits. Um, we did parking lot visits. We did work visits. uh, And we didn't need to wait for any permission. We didn't need to wait for any approval. And what we found where we thought patients would, uh, because they lost their jobs, they would be dropping their their membership in our program. What we found is that they found us very valuable. And the last thing they wanted to do during a medical pandemic was cut off the relationship with their doctor. Uh, And so this was actually, you know, you talk about essential workers. This was an essential expense in people's budgets that they were not going to touch. right? Um, And so what we did is we gave economic relief to those patients that did have true financial hardships. We gave 30 days free uh, for anyone that called us up and said that they were having financial problems. And typically after that 30 days, they usually qualified for for unemployment and and were able to sort of continue their their membership with us. So, in fact, like I said, we're in a growth mode. We're we're hiring doctors. We're adding two doctors to the practice.
1: Congratulations. Uh, Thank you. That's wonderful. That takes us
0: up to five. Uh, in two separate locations. Uh, and we continue to provide great rural, rural health access where uh, in, in many areas, rural health has been decimated. Rural hospitals are closing uh, in the wake of this pandemic. And again, we're seeing great success in the model. Uh, and I think this is being, being held up as one of the key solutions. Uh, and interestingly, when Medicare changed all their rules to, in the pandemic the, in emergency fashion, they really did sort of model it after what we what we were doing. You know, we talked with them and, and gave them ideas on what we were doing right, and they changed the rules so that more people could do what we were doing.
1: Well, you know the the, um, the this this uh, pandemic has has uh, offered or or has created opportunities that uh, hopefully um, will will be um, uh, that 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 will. Uh, that will that will uh be allowed to uh continue after we get through this, and it's going to really be up to the administration and 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 Congress whether or not they um allow things like uh continued coverage of of telehealth um, on a broad basis and uh try to get rid of some of the other regulations that have made it difficult to deliver health care, and they've they've, uh, kind of relaxed them during the COVID pandemic, and I think that we need to uh, push. That's the next battle that we need to fight. So, Lee, um, I know you've got to go. I wish we can have another half hour with you, but I'll, I'll Get you back here again soon, so that we can cover, you know, some other Graham that I, I really uh, wanted to talk about today. But thanks for being with us. You, as always, you are uh, the the go to person on DPC and other healthcare policy issues.
0: Hal, I appreciate everything. You're a good friend and a great leader. And, and thanks again. We'll talk soon.
1: Okay. Well, thanks for being with us. And we're in in our break, so stay with us, and we'll be back in the Doctor's Lounge.
0: Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctor's conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m.
1: In 2009, the membership organization, Docs for Patient Care, was founded. People all around the country wanted to participate in the efforts of this group, and they wanted to join, but they were unable to do so unless they were physicians. It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now, everyone can join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients Dedicated to fighting for your healthcare freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer, please go to www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docs, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org and make a tax deductible donation and join the fight along with us. Thank you.
0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com
1: Thank you for listening And we're back in the doctor's lounge uh, Our guest this first part of the show was Dr. Lee Gross who is uh, I think unquestionably the uh, the the leader in direct primary care in the U.S. and he has taught me everything that I need to know about this and and uh, I, I think that as a non-primary care doctor, I probably know more about direct primary care than any other non-primary care doctor in the country. And he, Lee has done just um, a, a such an incredible job and, and uh, such an such a important service to um, uh, the healthcare of Americans by um, uh, taking this cause and waving the flag and fighting in Washington and, and and teaching people how to do this in their state capitals, I did that in uh, in Atlanta uh, to push direct primary care through in this with the help of other um, committed doctors in in Georgia, and I know that people in twenty. Um, Seven other states, including Lee and in Florida, have uh, done the same. And thanks to him telling us what we needed to explain to legislators, um, we've we've been able to move the ball, and we've gotten it down the uh, the field, as Lee said, 99 yards. We need to get that last yard, so everybody needs to uh, go to federalregister.gov and write a comment in there, as um, Dr. Gross had written. Uh, Um, instructed so that we can uh, try to uh, uh, get the ball into the end zone. So the show today is really a little bit back on track. It is uh, the last few shows that I've done have been um, COVID shows. They have been uh, shows that have uh, really been a little bit uh, gloomy in in some respects and and today is a show about solutions and we've uh, heard in the first half of the show what one of those solutions, which is the direct primary care um, uh, support that will allow people to get better health care for less money and uh, it's uh, a model that, as you heard, is now embraced by 1,500 doctors. Without direct primary care, uh, I, I would have to tell you, um, and honestly, I believe this, that family medicine will disappear because nobody's going to go into that field simply because they cannot make a living. And those who are taking care of patients primarily will be working for hospitals. Which brings me to my next point for solutions. So in this pandemic, the hospitals have been very, very bad, um, uh, uh, actors. They've, they've, uh, the, the, um, media and, and, uh, and others are holding hospitals up as, as, uh, uh, really, the the, uh, um, the heroes in this pandemic. It's not the the hospitals that are the heroes. It's the doctors and the nurses and the support staff that are the heroes. The people who are in the um, in in the corporate suites um, are are not. Um, heroes at all. In fact, they are um, opportunists. They are doing the best they can to protect themselves and their business, um, and they really are not uh, protecting patients. And i i want I can't overemphasize enough that one of the problems that we face in healthcare. Is the, the um, transition of care from private care, from, from the private practice of medicine, to hospital-based, hospital-run health care. It, um, it is um, inferior care to personalized care that people get in, in their uh, private doctor's offices. The dogma is that the private offices are inefficient and they don't communicate with other doctors and so having a coordinated healthcare system that is run by, that, that uh, is delivered at hospitals that they control with the flow of medical information is superior and uh, that, is, that is fake news. The 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 fact of the matter is that doctors like Doctor Gross or like myself, who uh, who I I manage the largest urology practice in the southeast, we deliver care that is, in my opinion, superior because we are aligned with our patients. We don't have any um, any ulterior motives. We do not need to answer to a hospital administrator about what kind of tests we're running or what kind of surgeries we're doing or not seeing enough patients in the course of a day. That's what doctors who are owned by hospitals have to face. And the hospitals have been very bad actors in this COVID emergency. They, um, they have laid off and furloughed Their employees, they have uh, fired doctors with contracts because the contracts that they have um, stipulate that they can fire doctors without cause. One of my best friends was fired by Emory um, for reasons that he is still baffled by, and he was the busiest surgeon in the hospital at which he worked. In fact, he was busier than all three of the younger surgeons that they brought into that hospital, that he brought into that hospital combined. So once again, three doctors were not as busy as this one doctor, and yet they fired the doctor. Why? It doesn't make any sense. Um, But he had a big salary, and they were able to get that salary off their books, and these are... Places that are not devoted to healthcare—they're devoted to their their business model. What's their business model? Their business model is to make money, feather their own nests, and to um, and to grow and get bigger and become a bigger and bigger business. Now, I said this is the solutions show. But I have to point out why this is a problem and then what the solution is. And the problem is that hospitals are, for the most part, nonprofit enterprises. There are about 5,000 hospitals in the U.S., and almost 4,000 of them are designated as nonprofit. What does that mean? They pay no income tax, they pay no property tax, they pay no sales tax, they pay no taxes. And the reason why they were given that status is because they're expected to give back to the community. And that giving is supposed to be in the form of lower costs of care or free care Nonprofit status for hospitals actually got started back um, in in the nineteen uh, forties with uh, Catholic hospitals that, with run by nuns, that gave free care to uh, to the destitute, and they were given uh, the tax exempt status, and that has been um, extended pretty much to virtually. Eighty um, percent of the hospitals in this country, and what do they do with this money? They do not give it back to the community. What they do is they um, they advertise on billboards that that um, that help to grow their business. They buy property at um, at at uh, without having to pay any ad valorem taxes or any real estate taxes. Um, they they pull their money in offshore bank accounts. They put on extravagant uh, galas to raise more money. A not-for-profit status simply means that they, the business does not distribute the money that they get to shareholders. But it does not mean that they um, can't, Get bigger and grow and pay themselves exorbitant salaries, despite the fact that nonprofits should not be doing that. Because they, part of a um, nonprofit of five hundred one c three, says that no part of their earnings is allowed to inure to the benefit of any private individuals, and this specifically includes earnings and excessive salaries. They're not paying for the services that they are using on a regular basis. They're not paying for the um, fire department or the sewer or the police who protect them in, um, in areas right now, which are um, in, in neighborhoods where there is rioting. But yet they get to operate tax-free pay themselves exorbitant salaries, and I'm talking about millions of dollars for the CEOs and for the executives in the C-suites. And if, if you look at what's happening during the pandemic, they are not taking on risk Maybe some uh, some of them have made a token effort to reduce their salaries a bit. But, you know, in my practice where we kept every single one of our 400 employees on without firing an individual, without furloughing an individual – the, the doctors, the partners, did not take a salary for several months. We ate it so that we could protect the vulnerable in our practice who are living paycheck to paycheck and who depend on us for their livelihood. The hospitals are not doing that. They are, they are um, basically um, uh, transferring that risk to the people who have supported these hospitals, during the pandemic and kept them going. And Emory, I, I like to go back to Emory because they are one of the bad actors in in the Atlanta community. They um, had um, not only furloughed people during the pandemic um, who who are employees at the institution, despite the fact that people were coming to work and putting themselves at risk with no PPE, no PPE, but then what did they do? They're, they're not back up to full steam. So they, they um, a couple of weeks ago, fired several thousand employees um, to, uh, to make up for the shortfall in revenue. Forget about the fact that this is a, 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 an institution that has billions of dollars in its endowment. And how dare they fire people who put themselves at risk and who are dependent on on these institutions for their livelihood when in, when you've got the C suite people who are not getting fired and they may have taken a token slight decrease in their salary, but I can assure you that somebody who's making $5 million a year and not taking a salary for a month or two is entirely different from somebody who is um, making uh, $24 an hour and needs that job. So the hospitals have been very, very bad actors, and they should not be rewarded by the federal government for their bad behavior, and yet they are. They are getting subsidies, they are getting um, special treatment, and they're still getting um, higher reimbursement than doctors are for the same services. So, solution, this is solution time. What do we do? We level the playing field. How do we do that? Well, several ways. Number one is we need to go ahead and make sure that people in Washington Understand that Medicare services and they not Medicaid is state run, but 90% is supported by the federal government. That Medicare and Medicaid services do not get paid at a higher rate to the hospitals than the doctors, and so the site of care should not determine how much money a service is worth if you do a colonoscopy in your office um, in your GI lab it should pay the exact same amount as if it was done in the hospital by taking away these incentives from hospitals hopefully they will stop buying up physician practices and, and leave doctors alone and let doctors do a better job on their own than being under the thumb of the hospitals that's number one number two is that we need to have states finally get rid of certificate of need laws we need to make sure that the playing field is leveled let doctors run hospitals like they did back in the 1950s and in the 19, early 1960s every city in the country had a doctor's hospital what's a doctor's hospital it's simply a hotel it's a place where doctors can put their patients and know that they can get concentrated care in a setting that would be a, a little bit more controlled than at home. Doctors ran those hospitals. They did a great job. But over the years, doctors have been told by business people, by by insurance companies, by all the special interests that we just don't understand how to do this as well as they do, and we need to focus our efforts on health care, not on business. So little by little, these doctors' hospitals disappeared, and in fact, in the latest iteration uh, in Obamacare, it was against the law for doctors to get together and open up a multi-specialty surgery center. So we... Can really change things and get back better care for patients, more individualized care, more qu- better quality of care. You know, people go into into uh, hospitals, and we've I've in this COVID emergency, I've I've seen this time and time again where people are going into the hospital um, and getting cared for by hospitalists. Hospitalists are the biggest. Problem in the continuity of care that we are dealing with. Why is that? Because they do not have relationships with a patient. The doctor that you go to see every day has that relationship. But what has happened is that because of complex medical record systems, which doctors in the community are unable to comprehend and, and get on board with, they have been pushed aside and they've been excluded from being in the hospital setting and they've made it more and more difficult for your doctor to get into the hospital. And so they say, don't worry, we've hired doctors to take care of those patients as hospitalists. Well, the hospitalists work from, uh, they work an eight-hour shift or a 10-hour shift, maybe a 12-hour shift, but when the shift is over, they're done. And you know what? They may not see you again during your hospitalization. It may be a different hospitalist every day that's taking care of you, depending on the the hospital that you're involved with. So these are the things that we can change. These are the items on the punch list that are solutions. And take away the tax-exempt status from hospitals... Make payments site neutral and level the playing field by letting doctors compete against hospitals. Those are three enormous changes, I think, that can come out of this COVID emergency to, um, to get the ball across the goal line and give everybody better care. Along those lines, it's a tangential Solution, excuse me, solution would be for price transparency. There is a lot of people who are fighting for price transparency. Um, there are groups that are um, working against this and spending their money. One of those groups, surprisingly, is the American Hospital Association. The, the hospitals are giving money, the nonprofit hospitals are giving money to the American Hospital Association, and the American Hospital Association is lobbying Congress and state legislators to keep the status quo, to keep the certificate of need laws in place, to prevent price transparency. They are; they have spent last year over four hundred. Um, million. I'm sorry. That's that's not that's not correct. They've spent. I um, uh, have this figure here. It's it's an enormous figure, and I and I lost my number. But it is it is um, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars of of money going to lobby Congress. This is money that once again is tax free money. You and I are paying for this. We're paying for them, the hospitals, to lobby, to continue to keep the status quo, and uh, and prevent us from knowing how much a procedure costs. We are paying to allow hospitals to um, have skyboxes in in stadiums or offshore accounts, but yet have surprised medical billing because there were procedures that we thought were covered by our insurance, which were outside of insurance. And then these same hospitals that were supposed to give back to the community are putting liens on people's houses or garnishing their wages to to, um, recoup the money that they did not get from the services that they have given. And by the way, the money that they're trying to recoup are not the true costs that they're trying to recoup. They are There, there are three, three different costs involved in hospitals. One is the actual cost. What it really costs to deliver care, one, the second is the discounted cost, what the insurance companies are willing to pay, and that's a negotiated rate with between hospitals and the insurance companies, something that they do not want you to know. That's the whole point of price transparency. And then finally, there is the um, the charge master ch- uh, cost. that is the make believe charge that they say a procedure or service costs and they why do they do that? They do that so that they can write off more money and make themselves look better on their on their IRS forms, their their nine nineties. So they're giving away more care. Let me let me say this um, in, in a way that people will understand. Let's just say a heart surgery really cost um let's just say um $20,000 you know for the anesthesia for the or for you know for real real cost then there's the what the insurance companies are willing to pay the insurance companies will pay for that service maybe maybe $35,000 they'll that's what they're going to pay but their charge master cost what they have when the list price for all of the itemized things that went into that episode of care can sometimes be over a million dollars. They can, it, they just, it's just like a cash register, ching, it just keeps piling on. That's a make-believe number because that that number, first of all, is list. It doesn't exist. It is, it is um, when when they open up a a. Uh, uh, a, a package of gauze, five dollars. Whether or not they use it or not, you know, they could just open it up, and it it goes on your bill. It's part of the charge master, and so there are three different prices, and and nobody knows how much anything costs. But when the hospitals go after people, they are very often going after the the um, the make believe charges that they have put onto a patient. And, um, and so solution time. Solution time is to, um, first of all, prevent them from lobbying. There is a law in place that they can't lobby. It's not being enforced. As I said, 80% of the hospitals are nonprofits. They're 501c3s. They cannot contribute money to the American Hospital Association and then have that American Hospital Association go and lobby on behalf of them. That is That should be illegal. I can't do that. And where Docs for Patient Care Foundation is a 501c3. We can't contribute money to another entity to lobby on our behalf. Why should hospitals... So, you know, there's a lot of uh, work being done trying to get price transparency in place. And so what that means is that everybody will know what health care will cost. And and the, uh, the Trump executive order has, has uh, s- um, seen to it that that is going to happen. And now what we really need to do is hold... The legislators' feet to the fire because, despite that, the fact that there's an executive order, we need legislation to to uh, codify this and make sure that this sticks. And with those changes, just those few changes to the hospitals and to price transparency, I think that we will be a lot further on in helping. Individuals get the best health care that they possibly can get. I want to thank my guest, Lee Gross, who is with us today and was, uh, um, as always, informative. And, uh, and we appreciate the work that he has uh, championed more uh, than any other primary care doctor in this country. And so uh, come back to us in uh, a week for my co host, Dr. Scott Barber, who will have. Another riveting show, and I'll be back here in two weeks behind the microphone. Thanks for being with us. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.